Guess what, guys? The Hunter Biden laptop is real, and it only took the mainstream media two years and two election cycles to confirm it. The show starts now. Well, it is almost Thanksgiving, and Hunter Biden's laptop from hell is the gift that keeps on giving, or it would be if mainstream media would acknowledge it, and it's very troubling contents. And no, I'm not talking about Hunter's hoe and crack pipe personal photos. I don't really care about those. I care about his foreign business dealings and more importantly, the ones that involved the big guy who, whether he knows it or not, sits at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And more importantly than even that, I want to know what Hunter slash the big guy had to give or give up so talentless, skillless, and often pantless Hunter Biden could cash in on the Biden family promises. You know, we could ask Press Secretary KJP again, but this is all we get from that skilled orator. Top Republican on the House Oversight Committee, Congressman Comer, has said that he's investigating the president's involvement in his son Hunter's uh, foreign business dealings. Uh, one, looking for your reaction to that, and, and then on the merits of the allegations, can you address whether the president was involved in any of his son uh, Hunter or his brother's uh, foreign business dealings? So, look, I, you know, um, there's there's some a little bit of uh, interesting, uh, you know, kind of on-brand uh, thinking here. They get the majority, and their top priority is actually not focusing on the American families, but focusing on the president's family. Yeah, those sign language interpreters have the hardest job in America. But I guess two years and more importantly, two election cycles later, we could look to the pinnacle of journalistic integrity, CBS News, which has finally verified the laptop from hell as being real and Hunter Biden's. But if you'll recall in 2020, you know, before the big election between Donald Trump and the big guy, they just couldn't wrap their minds or more importantly, their obvious liberal bias around it. Trump brought up what he calls the unfairness of the fake media, most prominently a lack of coverage of his unproven and unverified charges that former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter have received millions of dollars in corrupt payments from a Russian oligarch and a Chinese billionaire. And he's in the midst of a scandal. He's not. And he's taking... Of course not. he is, no. Leslie. Come on. Of course he is. It's the biggest, second biggest scandal. So, the biggest scandal was when they spied on my campaign. And these fake news media hacks wonder why people don't trust the media. Would the 2020 election have turned out differently if not for big tech, mainstream media, and Democrat collusion that worked to bury this very real story? We will sadly never know. But now that the wardens of truth and information have finally accepted reality, our new Republican House majority should get to investigating. And maybe after that, they can look into the still very mysterious Paul Pelosi nudist hammer attack. Mm. But still ahead. We didn't get the red wave we wanted nationwide, but the data makes it clear red state governors with red state backbones swept their re-elections. So what does this tell us about the future of elections? Find out next. Contrary to popular belief and wishful liberals, conservatism did not lose in the 2022 midterms. In fact, those candidates that leaned into conservatism, that maintained a backbone, stood up for values, tradition, and freedom, above all, cleaned house just a few short weeks ago. And the data backs it up. It's called the Loeffler Alec Report, and it ranks all 50 governors on their economic, fiscal, and executive policy. And guess what? Of the 10 five-star conservative-ranked governors, eight of them faced re-election this last election cycle. And guess what? They all won and most of them by a lot. 
Included in that list are Governor DeSantis, Noam, Kemp, Lee, and Abbott, all hard-nosed conservatives, with the exception of Lee, who fought not only the policy war, but the culture wars and won. So what does this tell us? That it pays to be conservative and stick to your guns. Joining me now to break it down is founder of Club for Growth and Economic Expert, Stephen Moore. Thank you for being with me, Mr. Moore. Hi, Tommy. Great to be with you. So I want to talk about that because, you know, a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans are a little disheartened about what happened in the midterms. We got a pink splash, not a red wave. But if you really dig into the data, those especially those red state governors that are truly conservative, they did really well. From your analysis, what does that tell us about the future of elections? Well, you're exactly right, Tammy. If you look at the uh, governors who we at ALEC rated the highest in terms of their economic performance and also their performance in dealing with COVID. Um, the ones that finished at the top of the heap, people like Ron DeSantis and people like Kim Reynolds and people like Governor Lee of Tennessee and Greg Abbott of, of Texas. And I could go on and on with that list. We have so many great uh, Republican governors. And by the way, also uh, Jared Polis, a Democrat uh, from Colorado, had a good score and he obviously got reelected too. So the voters were clearly voting back into office, the governors who did a really good job of uh, cutting taxes, reducing spending, reducing the regulatory burden, and not shutting down their economies, Tommy, that was huge. Not shutting down the schools, not shutting down the businesses uh, during COVID. And they were richly rewarded with this uh, midterm election. So why did that not transfer then down ballot? To some of those that are running for the Senate, some of them are running for the House and other state and local elections where our conservatives didn't do so well in midterms while some of these red state governors did. Where is the disconnect there for voters that you can see? Well, that's a good question. You know, even at the state level where Republicans lost, I think, a couple of chambers in terms of their majorities, uh, the Republicans did pretty well in terms of adding to their ranks. Uh, the red states tended to get redder in this election and the blue states got a little bit bluer. But you're right, at the state and local level, you know, you did have a bit of a red wave, but that red wave didn't really show up at the federal level. Maybe that's because voters don't trust the Republicans to, the, to do the right thing in Washington, but they've seen these governors perform. That's the whole point, Tommy. It's not that they have to believe their promises. They've seen what they can do and they like the results. Well, that's why governors usually make the best presidents. And I'm not hinting at a DeSantis 2024, but I want to talk about that because there was a lot of talk, a lot of blame to go around here during the midterms. You've got blaming of Trump and then you've got blaming of McConnell, McCarthy, others. Yeah. Now, do you think that there was a Trump effect, especially in places like Pennsylvania, where people, even though Trump wasn't on the ballot, they saw that candidate as a Trump endorser, a Trump like candidate, and they decided to vote against their interests just because of that Trump derangement syndrome? You know, there were a lot of factors that caused the disappointing results at the federal level. I think some of it was that some of the Senate candidates were not probably the best candidates that Republicans could have uh, put up. Uh, but I also think that uh, Trump is being a little bit scapegoated here. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit biased. I work as an economic advisor to Donald Trump. And I think, you know, he was certainly one of our great presidents in terms of his policies. But it's clear that a lot of people don't like his style, some of his antics and and uh, the you know steal the idea about stealing the election. So, uh, but I think that the problems are also that Republicans have to talk more about economic growth. They have to have a positive message of limited government, lower taxation, less regulation, 
um, better schools. That's one thing Alec has really worked on so effectively is using the power of competition and giving the parents the money so that they can provide the best kind of schooling options for their children. And we want to spread that, by the way, to the 50 states. Every state should be giving parents more options and not basically warehousing their kids, especially in inner cities where the schools don't work. Well, I think that you're right. Uh, as much as people care about the economy and inflation, they didn't seem to vote as much on that as we expected them to. And I think it's because, in large part, Republicans use the let's go Brandon campaign strategy and it failed because you can't just yes. say everything sucks. You have to provide an alternative. And a lot of Republicans were unable to do that or unable to message it correctly. Next thing I want to talk about, though, is election integrity. Because a lot of Republicans from 2020 until now, they're very disillusioned with the election process. And you've got states like Florida that say, ballot harvesting, we're going to make that a felony. And you've got governors that are standing up for that. You've got local legislators that are standing up for that. But by and large, when you look at our election system, we don't want it to be federalized. We want the states to control it. But what is your suggestion moving forward? Do Republicans need to start ballot harvesting, legalizing ballot harvesting? Do we need to play the game too? How do we prevent the mass mail-in voting from screwing us at every election in the future? Well, I think Florida is a, is a good example of a state that got it right. Did you notice, Tommy, that Florida had all their votes counted on election night? And meanwhile, states like California and states like uh, New Mexico and states like Arizona, you know, it was almost a week later before we knew who won those races. That's crazy. So first of all, we should say, let's get these votes counted within, you know, hopefully by election night, at least within 24 hours. That's absurd. I do believe that the kind of new voting of early voting is here with us to stay. So the question is, how do you make it? Um, uh, you know, uh, so that you don't have cheating? How do, how do you make sure that you don't have voter fraud going on? And and we need to figure out how we can make sure that the people who are voting are people who have a legal right to vote, that they're voting once and only once, and that they're legal citizens and that kind of thing. And we can figure this out. The most important thing, though, is the new rules are with us, and Republicans have got to figure out how to get their voters out early, you know, because if you wait till election day, you know, the studies show that, it, you know, about 20 percent of the people who say they're going to vote on election day for one reason or another don't show up to vote. So I think that the Republicans are behind the times in terms of how we're getting our voters out to the polls. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You know, a lot of Republicans and myself included, we do like to vote on Election Day. We just feel yeah. better about it. But it really doesn't yeah. matter if your election system is so messed up and, and it is so backwards like it is in Arizona and the process is so muddled. It really doesn't matter because if we don't get our early votes out, we're going to continue to lose. I want to talk That's about right. something that we, we should be talking about in our country right now is inflation and the economic projection headed into this next New Year. Are things going to get any better? Are they going to get any worse? I mean, I think Americans are just hanging on right now by a thread, trying to go through the holidays and be able to afford, you know, the bare minimum for their families. What do we have to look forward to in 2023? Well, certainly 2022 has wreaked havoc on family finances. You know, when you've got inflation running at eight to nine percent, but wages only rising a little bit more than five percent, that just means month after month after month after month, workers are falling behind Tommy. And so, you know, we estimated at the Heritage Foundation, the average family lost about $4,000 of purchasing power from the paychecks that they received because the inflation was outpacing 
you know, their raises. And so that's caused, now what does that mean? That's meant that a lot of families have had to increase their credit card debt to, to pay their bills and to maintain their civic standard of living. And so if you, I don't know if you saw the statistics, but Americans now a trillion dollars of credit card debt. They're acting like the federal government, just increasing debt, you know, month after month after month. Well, you can't do that and sustain yourself. That's going to have a crash landing. I think inflation is coming down a little bit right now, thank God. But it's still, we're still going to be looking at five or six percent inflation for many months to come. Uh, we didn't have inflation under Donald Trump. The inflation rate for his four years in office averaged two percent when he left office. We were at one and a half percent inflation. Two years later, we're at eight percent inflation. That's Biden's overspending, overregulating, and uh, really slowing down the American economy. And trying to convince us that tree hugging and electric vehicles should be our priority when Americans right. are struggling to buy Thanksgiving turkeys this year. It really chaps my behind. But I want to talk about just real quickly interest rates, real estate, homes. Because a lot of people, when rates were low during the pandemic, they went and bought houses that they now cannot afford. And everything feels like it's going to collapse in on itself the way it did in 2008 through 2010. What is your projection for that economy, for housing, for real estate? What are we looking at headed into the next year? Well, Tommy, I, I've, I've been known as kind of a, a happy warrior. But right now, I am really worried about the U.S. economy. It looks fragile to me. It looks precarious. You mentioned the idea of a financial crisis. Uh, you know, I pray that we don't have one, but I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, my God, we've under Biden in just two years, Tommy, think about this. In two years, we've increased our national debt and our spending by $4 trillion. And we've borrowed every penny of it. And then we're printing money to pay for it. I mean, that's what a third world country does. That's what banana republics do. We've got to get our finances in order. Republicans in Congress have got to start taking a chainsaw to the budget and cutting all these extraneous expenditures. I mean, do we need a $300 billion green energy slush fund? Do we need to spend $40 billion more to hire 80,000 more IRS agents? Do we Shouldn't we be looking at the fraud in the unemployment benefit program and Medicaid? You know, $150 billion of fraud and... Uh, and um, erroneous payments. I mean, that's so outrageous. By the way, I didn't say 150 million. I said 150 billion dollars. And we just act as if that's just the cost of doing business. So we better get our financial affairs straightened out. And Republicans in Congress have got to hold down the spending, or we could be facing, God forbid, a financial crisis like we saw in 2010 that caused you know massive damage to American families. We don't want to see that, but we have to head it off by growing the economy, producing more American energy and cutting extraneous government spending. Do you predict that the government is going to shut down if we don't raise the debt ceiling? And do you think the Republicans should hold firm on that and shut it down until we do, in fact, cut spending? Is that the route that we're going to have to take? And would that be catastrophic for not only our country, but for our party politically? Yeah, this is a really important point. So the crisis is not that we might, uh, you know, not pass the debt ceiling on time. The crisis is if we do pass a debt ceiling and just whistle Dixie and act as if everything's just fine. No, America, everything is not just fine. We have a $23 trillion national debt. We have an economy that's not growing at all. We've got inflation out of control. We've got to do something pretty urgently. So I'm a big believer we need to use the debt ceiling as leverage as we have in the past 
to get a budget deal that starts to bring these spending uh, spending levels down. This is what any, look, if you go to a bank and you've got a situation, you're massively in debt, Tommy, you're, you're not going to get another loan from the bank until you can show them that you have a plan to deal with your debt crisis. So absolutely, we need a uh, very concrete plan of dramatic reductions in government spending. And until that happens, if I were in Congress, I'd say, hell no, we're not raising the debt ceiling again. We're not going to give you an unlimited credit card. That's what the Democrats want. No, I agree. And I think the Republicans can still win on this issue, even if we do shut down the government, if we message it correctly, like you just said. Let me just correct you on something. It will be the Democrats who are shutting down the the, uh, government. They're the ones who are basically saying, no, we don't want to reform our practices. And I think the American people, 80% of Americans would be with us if we said, we don't want to shut down the government. We just want to plan in place before we give the government a higher debt limit to deal with the debt crisis. Because if we don't deal with it now, Tommy, whenever are we going to deal with it? Well, you're right. And that's the messaging that Republicans need to send, because oftentimes, because of the way that the media and big tech works, voters and viewers are very confused on that principle. And all they feel is that Republicans are once again shutting something down. So you're exactly right. Uh, I know that we didn't have like a a happy-go-lucky, hunky-dory projection of what's to happen, but I think it's hard truths that Americans need to listen to, and I appreciate your perspective as always. And uh, let's hear for those red state governors that are doing something. Thank you so much, Mr. Moore, for being with us. Yeah, they are the example of how how to run a government, not the people we have right now in Washington. Amen to that. I co-sign that completely. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we'll have you back anytime. We really appreciate your analysis. Thank you so much. All right, still ahead. Our neighbors to the north like hockey, maple syrup, and apparently communism. What is the cautionary tale of Canada, and what can we learn from it? Find out next. Canada, oh Canada, once the land of trees, snow, and maple syrup. But thanks to this tyrant dork, it's become a quasi-communist hellscape of rules, regulations, and politicians drunk on power. Now this might seem like just a Canada problem, but if COVID and the pandemic taught us anything, it's how easy tyranny can spread when the promise of free things and the ignorance of some voters goes unchecked. Joining me now with all the warnings from up north, criminal lawyer and Canadian Ari Goldkind. Ari, thank you for being here. It's great to be with you. And what a, gent- a gentle introduction to our prime minister. You really took the gloves off there. I enjoyed it. You know, I thought dork was the nicest thing that I could say in that moment. So I went with that in the spirit of Thanksgiving. I know you guys don't celebrate it. But, you know, here in America, we love Thanksgiving. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you that our leaders are much better because, you know, we have a very interesting man sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So I think we are mutually screwed. But I want to get right into that. (laughs) You have one of the worst presidents I've seen in my lifetime. I'm a very young 48, but we've gone through seven years of Prime Minister Trudeau with a country going in the very, very uh, wrong direction. So believe me, I understand it. And at least in your country, your guy gets at least 50% or more of the vote, leaving aside the Electoral College. In my country, the man you refer to is the king because he got 31% of the vote. Imagine how the rest of the 69% feel. 
That's what's interesting to me about Canada and the differences. You know, we're so close geographically, but our, our political systems are pretty far apart. However, the light seems to be closing between the two of them, and that's what really worries me because, quite frankly, I have a lot of friends of friends who live in Canada who, during the whole pandemic, I mean, they were essentially prisoners of war. They were stuck there or stuck here. They couldn't go freely back and forth because of the COVID policy. So that's where I want to start. You know, here, Ari, in America, a lot of our leaders that ushered us through the pandemic, the plandemic, as I called it, they're now asking for COVID amnesty. They want everyone just to forget that they forced children into remote learning, masked children, the vaccine requirements, people that lost their jobs, all that they just want us to forget. And unfortunately, Americans largely have done that. But it was far worse in Canada. What is the sentiment of Canadians now? And are you guys finally in the post-COVID era or are you guys going to cling on to that one as some Democrats choose to do here in the U.S.? I think it's probably going to be clung on to a little bit longer. In Canada, you know, you're right. There is a a close connection between our two countries, and we obviously consume more of your media than we do our own. But certain outlets that you're a part of and that you're connected to and millions and millions of Americans watch are pretty much not watched or even available in Canada, leaving aside cord cutting and everybody doing that sort of thing. We have a real problem right now as we speak, not necessarily with COVID, but with the effects of COVID and all the children that were masked for two or three years, not allowed to go to school, there's been an outbreak of a virus called RSV, RSV, which you're going to start reading about in your country more and more over the last two days, last two weeks. And in my city, which is Toronto, the emergency wards at children's hospitals are overflowing now. There are eight hour waits, there are children that can't get in, and so much of it is tied to the fact that, as you know, immune systems of children, which are supposed to develop in the playground, horsing around, being outside, not connected to screens, not masked 24-7, those have been decimated. So while if you wear a mask in the United States, you're a Canadian, you're going to be looked at as Hannibal Lecter. In my country, if you're not wearing a mask, you're probably not going to get the stink eye that you would have gotten six months ago. But in my country, it is a very, very different body politic, so to speak, about experts and whether you're even able to vocalize what your opinion is. My country says, shut up. Your country says, well, you can talk, but you're going to be siloed. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely true. I want to talk about the vaccine as well, because we, we're very close with Canada. We follow what's going on in Canada, especially because of Trudeau and all of his tyrannical policies. But especially during COVID with the freedom trucker situation, that's when a lot of us, especially us American conservatives, paid attention to what was going on there because we were proud that Canadian truckers stood up. There were a lot of, you know, employees, employers in the United States that did not have that intestinal fortitude to do what Canadian truckers did. But the way that Trudeau treated those freedom truckers was abhorrent at best. I mean, those are his citizens. Those are his constituents. Are the effects of that still there? Are Canadians still angry about some of what happened? Well, that's such a great question, Tommy, because you may not know that as you and I speak right now this second, and I mean literally as we speak, and nobody should change the channel or, or go away from us talking, there is an inquiry going on into that freedom convoy as to whether it should have been invoked. And as you and I speak... Within the last 24 hours, we have seen, and this is a a term that will be familiar to your viewers in the States, the deep state or the swamp. 
We have learned in the last two days that the Emergencies Act really should never have been invoked. Trudeau smeared these people, to your question, Tommy. He called them racist. He called them misogynist. He called them white supremacist, which, if you know anything about the trucking industry could not be further from the truth. One, it's very diverse in my country. Very few people know that. And the second is that these are not the people that live on Pennsylvania Avenue or on 17 Mile Drive or the Upper West Side of Manhattan. These people have had their lives decimated by these mandates that didn't allow them to drive a truck. A a non-glamorous but honorable profession that through a whole series of market forces of being done away with, he tarred and feathered these people. And just the other day, the head of our, and I'm going to use this term, Tommy, very loosely with air quotes, <laughs> our, our intelligence agency called CSIS came out and said, well, we know the definition of national security threat that let us go after people's bank accounts. Ordinary people, Tommy, in your country and mine that gave 20 bucks to these people because they sympathized. And by the way, ask yourself, if you gave 20 bucks to BLM two years ago, right. Would anybody have called you a name or come after you? Their bank accounts, Tommy, were frozen. I emphasize this. No due process, no court order. You get more. I'm a criminal defense lawyer, believe it or not. Don't hate me because I said that. But you get more due process if you're a money launderer, a tax evader. You get more due process if you're a Zelensky and, and, you know, corrupt and laundering money through the UN, then these people and the national security head came under oath and said, well, the definition really didn't cover the emergency that we thought it was. So what did we do? We def- we defined the definition differently. Now, you know, in your country, that's what they did with a vaccine two mm-hmm. years ago to your question about the mandate. They just changed the definition like they changed the definition of recession. This is under oath. This hearing is a boondoggle, sort of absolutely unbelievable. But the bad news is, Tommy, is we're so distracted by cell phones and TikTok and puppy videos and, you know, who's burning who on YouTube that most Canadians don't have the bandwidth to really tune into what kind of an attack on democracy and liberalism a word that most people fundamentally don't understand anymore. They think it means left-wing or right-wing. It's not what liberalism means. You have a government that's being run by a bureaucracy rather than elected officials deciding how Canada will be run. That is quite dangerous, but I appreciate it's not as interesting as a cat video or some (laughs) lawyer having their face on Zoom being masked by a cat. You know, you're right about that, and that happened in the U.S. as well. Like I said, with the whole COVID amnesty thing, they asked for COVID amnesty. A lot of Americans gave them COVID amnesty in the midterms. They did not vote on an issue that we'd think they would be really fired up to vote about because their kids were masked, they were kept out of school, generational learning loss will be the result, among other things, people that lost their jobs. And then, you know, of course, in in New York and in elsewhere, people that were fired for vaccine mandates and such, they're finally saying that they're going to rehire those people, give them back pay, remains to be seen what they're really going to do to make it up to these people if there's anything they can do. But we also have a mental health crisis caused by all of this. Moving away from COVID, though, because eventually COVID will be over. We will have to get over it. I want to talk about Canada and and gun policy. 
So I know that there's big differences between the way Canadians feel about self-defense, feel about gun rights, and Americans. It's kind of an inherently American thing, at least it used to be, to believe in guns and believe in the individual right to own and, and bear arms. In Canada, it's a little bit different, though. However, I wonder, are Canadians a little wary of this new ban on, on handgun sales in your country under Trudeau? So let's talk about the handgun ban, and I'll, I'll give full disclosure to you and your audience. You will not like my answer here. I put it out on the table. I don't like guns, not a big fan of them, don't want my country to look like the U.S., where if I go to the Cheesecake Factory, I have to worry that the two people next to me are packing if I look at them the wrong way or I, you know, I, I cut somebody off in traffic. It's literally what Canadians think about. But my views on that are evolving, Tommy, and I'll tell you why. We have crime running rampant in my country, particularly in the big cities that your audience have heard of, the Torontos, the Montreals, the Vancouvers, crime is out of control. There are the same kinds of demographic, not democratic, demographic changes in my country that you're facing in yours. And you're not allowed to talk about them. They're the third rail. But what you're having is you're having crime move from areas that it typically was in, where police officers were able to do something about it. Police officers were not handcuffed. Now they're completely handcuffed, Tommy, and they can't even proactively police. And when you have police only able to react, you then combine that with a government that bends over backwards and does cartwheels. I mean that very literally. Again, this is my day job. You have a government that bends over backwards to protect criminals. The ordinary, average, innocent citizen who often comes from a racialized community. Let's not pretend that so much of this violence doesn't take place by people essentially destroying their own communities. Those communities deserve to live as well as anybody living in a gated community, in a Pelosi-like fortress that theoretically has security guards around it or a gate in front of it. But what you have now, because the government won't dare talk about the reason we have crime, who's doing crime, why crime is being done. It's not just because babies were dropped on their head as a child and we should all sing Kumbaya. The government has chosen to go after lawful, law-abiding, properly storing gun owners as if it's a talking point. The good news is even people like me, Tommy, let me answer my, let me end my answer here. Even people like me who don't want us to look like the states in terms of guns, Even people like me are starting to figure out, look, if the police can't protect you, if it takes 45 minutes when you call 911 for a cop to show up, if you live in a rural community, or if you defend yourself, you're going to get charged and the person who did it is going to be called a victim. Remember, in this society, we call people victims who are not. We call victims that should be called victimizers and vice versa. A lot of Canadians are justifiably even though they're not pro-gun, they're trying to figure out why Trudeau and his cabinet's entire attention span is all about these lawful, law-abiding people on ranches in Alberta versus the gangbangers who are shooting up inner cities. 
Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that you are now really seeing the American perspective. You're seeing what our founding fathers saw so very clearly. And to clear that up, too, Americans are not just inherently pro-gun. I mean, I'm from South Dakota, which is actually closer to Canada than a lot of other states in the United States. I'm from South Dakota, so I grew up around guns. We grew up on, you know, ranches and farms, and that's just what you had to do when you live out in rural area, whether you have a lot of police or not. It takes a long time to get out to rural places. So that's how I grew up. But I'll tell you this. It's not that Americans just love guns because we're just so gun happy. It's because we realize that if the government is not going to protect us, we cannot rely upon the government to protect us. In fact, if the government chooses to infringe upon us and protect the thugs and the felons, as you noted, we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. And I think Canadians will be wise to look at what Trudeau's doing and what you pointed out and say, why are you going after law-abiding gun owners that want to protect themselves and their family? And then you look at everything that he implemented with his emergency powers and the tyranny that he inflicted on your country and you say, boy, that seems a little problematic to me that he's now going after more rights and more freedoms because it's about control at the end of the day. I could talk to you forever, but in closing, I just want you to give my viewers here in America a warning, a brief warning about what you're seeing in your country and how you think it's going to impact ours or spread into ours. I would say to be as brief as I can, Tommy, we're really seeing the decline of the West. I think this is not something that can be looked at just in terms of a U.S. lens. We are more and more dependent on a globalized idea of the world that doesn't work. It doesn't work for anybody but the elite who fly off in their private jets to these weird, wacky conferences where people who have been elected to nothing seem to be in control of what's happening in the West. The problem is the third rail of issues that we're not allowed to discuss or if you get started with discussing them it immediately stops because you get called a bunch of names so good for you for having the you know what's to talk about them because in my country there's still this pervasive idea that even if you're an intelligent informed well-read educated person or more importantly and better than that Tommy an ordinary average hard-working parent who's working one or two jobs with no savings to support your kids if you and express an idea in my country about it and it doesn't align with the western view the sunak the pm the, the unelected guy from britain who to me i don't know why we're not talking about him or the trudeau view of what's happened to my country in the last seven years what's really shameful here is that the people that have made your country great hard-working ordinary average americans they are the people left behind by the elite private jet flying people in your country and mine and i wish the class struggle not race not religion not any of the other woke identity politic things were talked about as much we have forgotten about who is the backbone of your country and mine and it's high time that conversation began anew it's the forgotten Americans, the forgotten Canadians. Uh, I know that maybe Canadians don't love the two words Donald Trump, but he was the one that came into our country and reminded folks that the forgotten Americans do matter. We wish you luck up north. I hope that eventually they'll get over COVID, and I hope eventually everyone can unmask and just breathe air. I call them face diapers for a reason. But I appreciate your perspective, and uh, I, I assume that when I talk to you, maybe in a couple months' time, You'll be a, a gun owner, at least wish you were a gun owner. And I look forward to that, Ari. I look forward to that chat <laughs> and seeing where we are in two months because a lot can happen. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being with us. 
And folks, coming up next on Tommy Lahren is Fearless, I will share my Thanksgiving final thoughts, the top three things I am grateful for in politics. You don't want to miss it. That's next. It's Thanksgiving Eve, and I'm sharing all the political things I'm grateful for this year. It's time for Final Thoughts. Being that it is the night before Thanksgiving, I figured it would be fitting to name the top three things I am most grateful for this year in politics. So here we go. Number three, I am grateful that Nancy Pelosi has been fired. No, she has not yet given up the House seat she has occupied for 35 freaking years. She will undoubtedly be in Congress until she is ushered out in a pinewood box or when insider congressional training is banned, whichever comes first. You know, the midterms were not what we thought they were going to be, but I'm grateful we have taken control of the House, grateful a few communists have been stripped of their committee assignments, and grateful that we will now be able to stop some of the utter bullcrap conjured up in the depths of the D.C. swamp. It's a small victory, but a victory nonetheless. Number two. I'm grateful for Florida and Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, and I don't even live in Florida, but it doesn't matter. Governor DeSantis forces all other red state weakling governors to level up. And yes, I'm talking to you, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee. Ron DeSantis not only won his race by nearly two million votes, he also has the intestinal fortitude to fight culture wars and win them. He's a patriot, a family man, and a damn good leader. He is also dedicated to election integrity and is willing to fight for it, not just with words, but with actions. We have a coastal highway, A1A, that was knocked out in three different counties in different parts. We sent emergency crews to do emergency repairs. By Saturday afternoon, all the roads had been repaired. And a lot of these states are still haven't finished counting their votes from the election. What kind of a, a system is that? We know how many votes are outstanding. You count the votes, you report the results, and then you move on. You don't take a week to count. You don't have dumps coming in where you don't even know where these votes came from. So if people want to know how to conduct elections, look what Florida does. Florida is now such a great state led by such an amazing leader. I would consider living there myself if not for the humidity and what it does to my hair. But I guess that means Ron is just going to have to be our president one day and I look forward to it. But the number one thing I'm grateful for in politics this Thanksgiving is that this man only has two more left in the White House. God love you. Nine and a half million turkeys. I tell you what, that's like some of the countries I've been to. And the, anyway, do you want to talk? Uh, yeah. And as embarrassing as Joe is, I'm also grateful for his condition of still being mostly alive because, at least for now, it staves off wheels on the bus Kamala from taking the Oval Office. You know, Joe and Kamala have less than 800 days left in office, which means there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And as the greatest nation on the face of the earth, a nation that survived eight years of Barack Hussein Obama, I know we can pull through until that glorious day when we take back government. But until then... Those are my final thoughts. A very happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. And liberals, I hope you can take off your masks long enough to enjoy your lab-grown turkey. But stay safe, and I'll see you right back here on Monday for another episode of Tommy Lahren is Fearless, powered by OutKick from Nashville. God bless, and take care.